0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Chris Hebbard. And Chris does something uh, kind of similar to the way to what I'm doing, but in my opinion, with a great deal more professionalism. Um, he is the uh, founder of stillnessspeaks.com uh, in which he or on which he offers interviews with uh, spiritually awakened people and teachers such as Francis Lucille and many others and um, he has you know he, but he does it with a very high level of audio qua- uh, audio video quality professional equipment and puts out um, uh, puts out very nicely produced DVDs. Um, I'm trying to do this thing on Skype, and it's a little bit of a, a challenge always. Uh, but we're kind of like barking up the same tree, and so I, you know, I got in touch with Chris, and uh, and it turns out he has a very interesting story about his own uh, spiritual awakening, um, to whatever extent he acknowledges that it has happened. And I thought he'd be a, a fascinating guy to talk to, and so here we are. Welcome, Chris. Hey,
1: Jim. nice to meet you, if only by phone.
0: Yeah. Or by Skype. Um, so Chris and I have been uh, chatting a bit before starting this recording, and he was saying so many interesting things. I said, "Wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's let's start this uh, because we're, you know, we're we're just wasting this. We can share this with others. Um, so we can either get right back into what we were talking about, or we can sort of start from the beginning and have you tell your whole story, and then kind of weave into some of these topics as we go. Um, maybe we should do that because you have a fascinating background. I yeah. think." Uh, Let's just let's just plunge into that. Sure. So, um, I've read, I, I listened to an, an online uh, interview you did with somebody. I also read your thing, and you know, I must tell you, when I was listening to your online, uh, your I, I forget what it was—a radio show or something. Yeah, it was a radio show with some guys in Nova Scotia. I was actually feeling waves of joy while listening to you. Be, when I often feel that when I listen to somebody who is speaking in a way. That just really strikes a chord with me. Um, and I thought, yes, yes, you know, points you kept bringing out. Uh, so I'm, I'm really kind of uh, happy that we've managed to make this connection. Now um, I'll let you tell your own story. I don't want to start to reiterate it. But you, you, you were a, a fairly hard-bitten businessman and high-stress Type A kind of, you know, lifestyle, and uh, that didn't work out so well for you but in the end it worked out very well so let's let's hear the whole thing well the whole thing or most, the of, thing. most of the thing, whatever you want to say the whole thing is
1: really no thing but um, yeah as we were saying before um, as interviewers as you and I both interview I, I think part of the issue um, is trying to meet our audience where they are as opposed to where we want to take them mm-hmm and one of the things that uh, I try to do when the teachers are accommodating is to um, have them talk a little bit about their story and that's really <clears throat> you have to be very careful with that uh, because it really doesn't speak to the point of what they want to speak but uh, in as much as most people think that they're human beings uh, on a journey through time and space sometimes it's nice to come back and take a look at a little bit of the background and so with that um, Without understanding, um, I'll share with you this. Um, I am a, a child of the '60s. I was uh, I was raised back in Pennsylvania and Connecticut. Um, when I say a child of the '60s, uh, that'll be obvious, I think, to you, Rick, and me, but maybe not to all the audience.
0: May I ask where in Connecticut? Because I'm from Connecticut.
1: I was born in Greenwich.
0: I used to teach transcendental meditation in Greenwich, and I grew up in Fairfield. <laughs> so there you go. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I, taught, I taught there in like 70, 71, 72.
1: Well, I left there long before that. When I was fairly young, my, my mother's family was from Greenwich, Connecticut, and my mm-hmm. father's family was from uh, the suburbs of Philadelphia.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, their two families ended up buying a business in northeastern Pennsylvania, in the Pocono Mountains of Pennsylvania. And we moved there when I was fairly young um, uh, into, the, into a fairly rural part of Pennsylvania, but which was about 80 miles from New York City and about 80 miles from uh, from Philadelphia. And so we had sort of a, a, a town and country lifestyle. We had an apartment in Manhattan and uh, uh, my grandparents were in, in Connecticut and my other grandparents were in Chestnut Hill. Uh, when I was very young, you were saying that you were teaching in Connecticut in the 70s. Um, when I was very young, in fact when I was 12 years old, I was sent off to prep school
2: mm-hmm.
1: on the East Coast. Which one? Uh, I went to Millbrook, okay. all, I have two brothers, all three of us went to uh, uh, prep schools. My older brother went to Hitchcock, which is uh, where George Bush went, my younger brother went to Blair Academy down in New Jersey, I don't know if that means anything. And I went yeah, to I've Mil-
0: heard of it. I taught at some of those schools, uh, I, I went to Tabor Academy for a year up in Massachusetts. <laughs>
1: wow, there are no coincidences. Yeah, really, small world. Yeah. So in any case, uh, I ended up at Millbrook School for Boys, which also happened to be the residence of someone else who became quite famous when I was there. I think I—I I think it was 1966 or 67 that I ended up there, and um, Dr. Timothy Leary was living there. I'll be darned. Yeah, Dr. Richard Albert, mm-hmm. who later became known as Baba Ram Das, and mm-hmm. so I went from a very strict. Uh, prep school, where you had to wear a coat and a tie. You would be thrown out if you smoked a cigarette. We went to church five times a week, uh, white glove inspections.
0: Wow. And
1: uh, Somehow, I fell into the influence of Stanley Augustus Owsley and LSD. <laughs> I managed to get expelled from prep school uh, mm-hmm. in my junior year and ended up in uh, another school, which couldn't have been any more different, uh, called the Woodstock Country School.
0: Oh, that sounds different.
1: <laughs> the only rules were no smoking in bed and no co- co- cohabitation between the girls and the boys. Uh-huh. Neither rule of which did I it was obey. obeyed, right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how it all started. Uh-huh. And then uh, I, so this is interesting because there's a turning point, Rick, that I'd like to talk to you about because you went through this period of time and this may make... Probably won't make a lot of sense to some of the people in our audience who weren't around at this time, but a lot of us, a lot of us were. There was then the beginning of the Vietnam War, right? And that was a, a, I think, a remarkable turning point. There were two things that happened when we were growing up. One was the Beatles, and the other was the was the war. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and both of those things, if, if you talk to younger people today about them, it just doesn't register how. Uh, how big those two events were, but the Beatles were really a cultural change of a huge shift that was much bigger than just their music. Oh, yeah. And the Vietnam War was absolutely the most horrifically scary, nasty mess that you could ever possibly uh, go through. Mm -hmm. And so, a lot of us, myself included, got very alienated in the United States during that period of time. In fact, I left the country for a while, Um, not about ready to serve. I had a lot of friends that were coming back in boxes from Vietnam, a yeah. draft was going on, um, and uh, there was a lot of disagreement as to whether or not we should be there. So, um, during that period of time, a lot of people experimented with drugs, uh, I'm no exception to that, mm-hmm. and during that period of time, a lot of people were introduced through The Beatles to Transcendental, to transcendental Meditation. All right. I know one person here that that probably happened to at that time, Uh, and Eastern Eastern religions, which uh, seemed to go hand-in-hand with some of the experimentation that was going on with hallucinogens. There was some some kind of connection there. Uh, Coming out of that, into the 70s, uh, there seems, from this position, to have been a split. Either you went further down the road, and a lot of my friends went actually to the east. They went to Tibet, they went to Nepal, they went to India, they continued down that path. Mm -hmm. Some of them joined uh, uh, communes, Uh, some of them became alternative lifestyle, organic growers, and that kind of stuff. Their whole life went that way. And another group seemed to like try to recover uh, their position in America, coming out of the war, and try to go back into the beast. I was one of the ones that went back into the beast. Hmm. So that gives you some context, but having gone back into the beast, I became very entrepreneurial, I became a business person, and, and as, as that happened, I became very aggressively extroverted. Okay? And, and so, a large part of my story has, n- has a complete spiritual disconnect to it. Right. Um, there was a huge period in my life where I just didn't care. I didn't care. I only wanted one thing in life, and that was more. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 so um, my career was involved in uh, direct response television and uh, and uh, infomercials and direct ah. mail and all sorts of direct <laughs> consumer advertising.
0: Do you know uh, Ed Beckley and Tim Hawthorne? Yeah, yeah,
1: they're both terrifically talented people. I yeah. would say they're both oh,
0: friends of mine, actually, and they both meditate, and yeah. Ed Beckley had his own spiritual awakening when he was in prison, and Tim Hawthorne's company is based right here in my town.
1: Yeah, and, and Hawthorne Direct, uh, I'll, I'll tip my hat to, I think mm-hmm. they're a very, very talented group.
0: Yeah. I was,
1: um, I was sort of more like Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, I was always looking over my shoulder going, who are those guys? Cause I was doing a lot of promotions that were right on the edge, one of the big ones, ironically, was that I was involved with the Psychic Friends Network with Dion Warwick. That was a pretty big deal.
0: Oh yeah, I remember that.
1: Yeah, call this 900 number and talk to a life psychic. Right. Uh, Eight or nine hundred million dollars with the sales done on that. Wow. And then a whole bunch of other stuff like that. But that is about as close as my life got to anything that would be called new age. And I was very cynical about it. Uh, There was really no heart connection going on with any of that.
0: Yeah.
1: I would say that my life was in resistance
0: mm-hmm.
1: to everyone and everything. In other words, I was pushing and trying to control my environment. Um, I was fairly successful at that for a long time.
0: Did you ever, in your quiet moments, think back and what about that experience I had on acid? You know, geez, there there must be something mortal nah, nah. in did, that. or did you sort of like completely blot that out and just you're just. I, I don't think you ever. I don't think you could blot that out. If
1: anything and this, I don't want to degenerate this conversation into into the whole hedonist drug and culture thing, but I do want to make one statement for people of our age who went through that period. If I was to say one positive thing about LSD, mm-hmm. that for sure was a fundamental shift for me, it was coming out of those experiences, I absolutely realized that there were alternative ways of looking at reality that were just as legitimate as the one I was commonly aware of.
0: Exactly. That was my big lesson from it, was that, you know, before that I always assumed that everybody saw the world the same. And you know, then when when I went through that experience I realized, holy mackerel, everybody sees it completely differently according to their level of consciousness or perspective or whatever. It's like seven billion different worlds out there.
1: Yeah, and, and if you've ever really done a, a strong psychedelic drug, you know, all the assumptions, even the fundamental assumptions about the solidity of objects right. comes into play, and what your relationship is with the world and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, at a very, very basic level, I, I, I think, uh, even though I stopped doing all that, um, uh, and, and all drugs and all alcohol sure. um, after a while, I think that that was a lasting impression that left an openness, and this is just presumption and guessing to me, that there was an openness here towards the exploration of who I was from that. Right. So that would be the the irrelevant part of it.
0: It planted a seed, and that seed just kind of stayed in the ground for several decades. (laughs) Yeah. And I also had developed this sort of,
1: from the 60s, 70s thing, this sort of renegade uh, anti-authoritarian rebellious attitude and I would say that was sort of a takeaway from that that went into my my entrepreneurial career. If I looked at Chris during that period of time I would say that part of the problem part of the reasons I became an entrepreneur is that I was essentially unemployable.
0: <laughs> 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 and that may have
1: come uh, from my raising during the during the sixties.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay, so carry on. I interrupted you.
1: Well no, you're not interrupting. I'm. And I'm trying not to uh, eat up too much time on this issue. But um, the next significant thing would be that I, um, uh, in 1980, I got sober. I got very heavily into drugs and alcohol, and in 1980, thank God, I got sober.
0: Hmm.
1: I buried a lot of lot of friends who didn't get that message. Yeah. So, but enough of that. And at that time, all that energy that was going into partying and and uh, and getting high and all that stuff, sort of got redirected in a twisted sort of way into saying to myself, I'm now sober, all my friends are still partying, so now I really can. I have a competitive advantage. Uh-huh. I turned all that energy into business. And so, this whole extroversion and aggression in business came out, and I went on a run for uh, 20 years. Mm-hmm. That was Everything went my way. Um, and it was not uh, the way of the Dow, it was the way of Chris. <laughs> right. That eventually, as we all know, uh, will lead you at some point to needing to uh, needing to see that the world doesn't operate that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, perhaps it was that and my cocky self-assuredness, let's put it that way, I was so clear from my side on a company with uh, 75 or 80 employees, I operated in three different countries and um, and so and everything had gone my way and then suddenly everything stopped going my way hmm. in every area of my life and it was very dramatic and it went on for a long period of time and during that period of time um, I fought and I fought and I fought and I fought and it just ground me down and ground me down and ground me down and it eventually um, Eventually, I just had a complete collapse, that's the best way to put it um, uh, I've called it things like a dark night of soul. Um, I think it's an apt description coming out of it and looking back at it. But everything came to a full stop there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there was, there's was an experience that some people are familiar with that sort of precipitated a whole change of direction in my life at that point.
0: seems like you're feeling a lot of emotion right now when you talk about that, am I, am I right? Or- it's, it's like you almost get choked up when you when you mention it
1: uh, it's sort of like it becomes comes back into this moment
0: yeah, yeah, uh-huh,
1: and so i sort of I sort of re-experience it
0: yeah, well, they say the world is your guru, you know, and it seemed like in your case the 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 the, the guru of the world was was doing some major ego busting, which you know yeah. in the style of Melarepa's experience or something <laughs> you know? i' have to say
1: i want I want to comment on that. I think it's really brilliant. One of the things I realize now that I didn't realize then is that everything is prasad. Everything is a gift. Yeah. And uh, some of us get this message very, very simply. Where we seem to be born that, that we're a lot more in sync with what's going on. We aren't sort of. But from here, I was sort of at war with everyone and everything. And the only way I ever learned anything, it seems like, if someone came up with a baseball bat. And hit me behind the head, and that's sort of what life did to me at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would have said, "God, this is the most horrible thing experience." But I went through and explained to you this whole thing. You just like your mouth would drop open. You'd say it was so horrible, but it only takes what it takes. Yeah. And and you know, like every crisis that I've had in my life, when I look look back at it from where I am now, I, and I look back at what happened, I realize. Those points were when my life made these dramatic turns mm-hmm. that I would never have chosen to make myself. Yeah, it put my life on a whole new course, which turned out to be a much better course of life. Okay, And so I've sort of gotten to the point now where when things apparently are going wrong, that that's okay too. Yeah, that Something needs to change. The universe needs to change. I need to allow things to change. Mm-hmm. And uh, that experience was my first lesson in that.
0: Yeah, and you know, theoretically that could have been dragged out over decades, and it could have been a very sort of gradual dismantling. But in a way, you could look at it as a blessing that it was pretty much, you know, radical. And, And you know, Kali was really wielding her sword, and let's get this over with, and get this guy into a better position. You know,
1: it was a Kali type experience.
0: Yeah. I
1: remember um, one of the first books because I was not—I uh, had no background in any of this. I knew nothing about Advaita, I knew nothing about any of this stuff. My feeling about New Age was it was like about pet se- uh, pet psychics and uh, and power crystals. And I right. was very, very Air, cynical airy about
0: fairy stuff and all. That. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um,
1: and I read uh, the, one of the first openings for me was uh, some of Jed McKenna's books. Physics. Oh
0: yeah, he
1: sort of brings that cynical view into into the inquiry thing, but. He's actually
0: know. from Fairfield, but Jed McKenna is not his real name, and no one knows who the guy really is, except his book cover designer, who's a good friend of mine, but won't tell. <laughs>
1: I, I, I've heard some things on that, but I don't think it's for the interview. Okay, but, good. <laughs> but the gentleman who refers to himself as Jed McKenna, right. um, uh, had a, uh, the only reason I brought it up, is that he talked about this Kali-like inquiry yeah this is this burning slashing, burning thing, and from this point of view um that was that was very similar to what the experience was there was nothing very graceful on, or nor pleasant actually um, yeah when I went
0: through yeah, so I mean and specifically you you know you you've lost your business, you lost your wife, you lost your money I mean that's what you're referring to here is just you know all all that stuff you'd spent two decades building up was being lost, right.
1: Yeah, there was a, and it just went on and on and on. It was just absolutely um, a moment in time. It was a great coincidence, but um, yeah. it was everything. Health was ever- too? Did you was- lose
0: your health also at that point? Yeah, I was
1: uh, diagnosed with chronic active hepatitis C. I was given wow. five years to live. My, mother died, my father died, my grandmother died, my dog died, my two cats died. Mm. My wife left me with my one-year-old son. I got sued by the federal government. Um, in a huge suit that went on for seven years, eventually eventually won it, but um, it cost us millions of dollars and aged me. Wow. <laughs> so, um, there were a lot of things that sort of magically all came together at, at a single point in time that were just absolutely overwhelming and it f- essentially brought me to a place where I just broke down and, and uh, I couldn't go I couldn't forward one more breath. Mm-hmm. I just broke down. And I curled up in the fetal position in uh, in the library of my home, and just started convulsing and crying.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that was a, a major turning point for me.
0: And how long did you lie there, like all night long, or something? or
1: It's hard for me to put a time on that because yeah. what happened during that was, there was a tremendous cathartic release from this crying, and praying just about the only honest prayer there is, which is, mm. please help me. I was just saying that over and over and over again. And at some point, I lost all concept of time and of space.
2: Mm.
1: And, um... So, I'm not sure how long it went. Certainly certainly not more than a night, but... Right. Um, there was a place that I was that was—it's very hard to describe.
0: Yeah, I think we get the picture. So, uh, and then when when you kind of began to come out of that, did you feel like a t- new day had dawned? I mean, did you feel like a, a big relief? And uh, no,
1: um, you know? actually, my experience is not about blissful, you know, um, samadhi-like experiences, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. a lot of people had. I came to this, uh, as you can see, from a fairly violent and sudden um, experience, and um, what actually happened was, I went into this space, this spaceless space for a period of time, it's maybe the best way that I can describe it, and in that period of time, or timeless time, um, I started noticing From this space, remotely, thoughts arising,
2: Mm.
1: and then thoughts going away, Mm -hmm. and each time the thoughts were away, I was back in this, in this spaceless space, as soon as I could put it, and then another thought would arise, and go down, and as I was watching it,
0: you probably could call that samadhi if you wanted to, you know, um, but don't need to, but.
1: As I I was watching this, Rick, Mm -hmm. I realized that the thoughts that were arising were Chris thoughts. Mm -hmm. And I had this very, very simple awareness. And that was, if I'm sitting here in this emptiness, whatever this is, and thoughts are arising sitting around, and then going away, and there's are Chris thoughts, then who am I? Right. Who am I? Mm-hmm. And that single thought completely devastated me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, a lot of people say, oh, I had this money like experience, and everything was, you know, I, I saw the nature of reality and everything. My, this experience for me, uh, I don't want to give the impression, was some kind of um, great opening of my heart, and and the ability to communicate about anything. It was just... uh, I I couldn't turn left or right. The reason I said some of this about my career was to try to set the stage that what I was was very aggressive and self-assured, very confident in everything that I was doing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Coming out of this, I didn't know who I was. I really didn't know who I was. And so it was impossible for me to have any confidence. I didn't know mm-hmm. how to turn left. I didn't know whether to turn right. I didn't know anything anymore. It was, it was ac- actually very, very disconcerting. Huh. And um, and I, I I didn't know how to deal with it, other than I I took my entire life and put it on full stop. Mm-hmm. I just put my entire life on full stop. I couldn't I I couldn't go forward. And so I started spending a lot of time journaling and meditating. I stopped working altogether. I left my family. I, I moved into a private place. I barely came out for a year, uh, almost a year. I didn't. I didn't come out uh, except maybe to have a meal or something like that. Uh, and occasionally, uh, as things went on, to meet some some people who called themselves teachers. Um, and the, all that time was really looking at this issue of this trying to figure out who I was because from where I was standing there was no thing that I was. Mm-hmm. So I know that sounds sort of silly that probably is difficult to...
0: No, I think it makes sense. I think that people listening to this will be able to relate to what you're saying or at least they've heard things like that before. Um, well, it's interesting because I knew no one. Uh,
1: I had no experience in any of this. I wasn't a meditator before. When I was in college, uh, I used to do a speaker program and I knew Alan Watts. I used to drink with Alan Watts, but it was more about partying with Alan Watts than, <laughs> than listening to Alan Watts. Right. And, um, so I really had no reference point on all this. Actually all I had was my own sort of cocky, self assured cynicism, egocentric sort of shell. And coming out of this I didn't I didn't I just didn't know anything. I didn't know who I was or what I was gonna do. And that. I guess put me in a position of openness, but I I didn't know where to turn to. So um, and I didn't know that anyone else had had this experience. And fran- frankly, where there was a good part of me that thought that I might end up getting psychiatrically hospitalized.
2: Uh-huh.
1: No reference point on any of this. I just I just said you know do I need need, need to go see a psychiatrist mm-hmm. or I did I, I didn't know what was going on.
0: That's interesting because listening to it now, you know, I, I think, oh, this is great. He, he, he really had the slate wiped clean. He was in a great position to sort of start, you know, d- investigating, you know, the spiritual life or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but for you, actually, you didn't have that background information to, to inform what you were in. And so you were just kind of like what, you know, you lost, as you say. You just kind of like... But but you you did it seems have um, the insight or the intuition to begin pursuing spiritual things. I mean you know maybe you had that doubt that you 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 might have a psychiatric problem, but you it's like your natural instinct was to meditate and to start reading spiritual books and stuff, right?
1: My natural inclination was to spend more time looking at who I was and trying to sort things through. it's funny, when when I was in my uh, career before this happened, someone had brought a copy of Eckhart Tolle's Power of Now into my house. Right. And I looked at all things like this as new-age garbage. And I can remember looking at that book and say, saying, who brought this into my house? And picking it up and throwing it across the room saying, get this garbage out of my house. Wow. <laughs> I, I guess that'll give you some kind of idea of just how arrogant I was. I mean, I was really, yeah. I was really very arrogant. And then after this whole thing happened, um, I was still experiencing... Um, I wasn't really sleeping in cycles like I used to sleep. I would sleep when I got tired and I would wake up when I was awake and, and my sleep was all disturbed. Some nights I didn't sleep at all. And one night when I couldn't sleep, I was walking around and I saw this book. I thought I'd thrown it away two or three times and still to this day I don't know how it got out of my house. So I saw this book, The Power of Now, the third time I'd seen it, And I just looked at it, and I just got angry, and I said, God darn it, it's still here? (laughs) I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I said, I'm going to speed read this. When I was younger, I would taken this Evelyn Wood speed reading thing. I'm just going to get done, and I'm going to throw this thing away, right? Okay. And I sat down, and I started reading it, and as I started going into it, I got about 10 or 15 pages into it. Hmm. And I realized, oh my God, I'm not going to read this in 15 minutes. (laughs) I'm not going to read this in 15 hours, and so right. then I another 10 or 15 pages, and I went, oh, my God, this is <laughs> unbelievable. And then, as I was going through that, now this was over a period of an evening, I got up to the part where he was telling a story about being at Oxford University, mm-hmm. and a dark night of a soul experience he had, and here in this book, and this is the first time I heard anyone say anything even like this, He talked about this dark night of the soul experience where his thoughts started appearing to him. Mm -hmm. And then disappearing. And how that was a huge turning point for him. And I saw that and I went, oh my God, I'm not the only guy who's had this experience. I cannot even begin to tell you how excited I was. I was so excited that there was someone out there who might be able to tell me something about what was going on and that I might not need to be on Thorazine for the rest of my (laughs) life.
0: It's funny because when you were telling your story, I was I was tempted to interject and say, "Boy, that sounds a lot like Eckhart Tolle's story," you know, and that's that's what you just. Getting. I mean, he was sitting there on the edge of his bed, you know, semi-suicidal and, and thinking, "I cannot live with myself anymore," and and then wait a minute, are there two of me? Who is this self with whom I cannot live? You know, and then that precipitated yeah. his shift. Yeah,
1: so I mean, I got terribly excited because that was really the first thing that I ever read. And the funny thing was that. There was no openness to this material when I came into the book. I did it, it dismissively. Yeah. I was going to read it and get rid of it and get back on with what I was doing. And when I got to that point, I, I went just I went apoplectic. I, I, I said, "I've got to meet this guy."
2: Hmm.
1: and And that's really what turned, uh, turned the whole scale for me. I have always been a guy who has had experiences first, and only later through help from other people been able to understand or learn the knowledge of those experiences
2: mm-hmm. but
1: these kinds of experiences for me come up and I really don't know what to make of them and then as time goes on and I'm working with people then maybe the mind begins to get some kind of understanding as to as to, as to what was going on so it all happened in that in that order for me and there have been a number of times where there are these glimpses let's call them glimpses try to be less dramatic about them, these these seeings, that will happen spontaneously. And a lot of the times, they're just like chunks of an iceberg that sort of fall off. And the full impact of what's going on isn't clear for quite a while afterwards. It's just coming into the event and coming out of the event. When you compare who you were before the event, who you were after the event, you know there's something very essential had happened.
0: Yeah. I think that kind of happens with most people. It takes a while to integrate these shifts, you know, and to have our understanding catch up with our experience. Although I suppose it can also work the other way around where people have an understanding that way exceeds their actual experience and they sometimes mistake that understanding for the experience. And that's a whole other issue. But uh, they're, they're very often out of sync and have to kind of balance out with each other.
1: So that's how it happened for me. I, I immediately began reaching out to Eckhart Tolle and to people that were associated with him. Mm-hmm. And that's when I first started getting turned on to some other teachers mm-hmm. uh, and some some books that, that made sense. And that was such a huge relief for me. That was really where all of a sudden I started feeling comfortable, like my life was going in a new direction and this was an exciting, an exciting thing. Um, and then, as I, as I met more people and I spent more time, um, my whole life changed around this. That's great. Completely changed around this. I mean, um, it became the, this initial... There was a clean sweep and that everything was fine after that. It's a tremendous amount of, of conditioning here. Uh-huh. And it's sort of like um, a conditioning, It's maybe it's like a, a clutch on a car, you might be able to disengage the clutch, the clutch is still spinning, it doesn't have any traction anymore, but there's still, I, I don't want to give the impression that there was some kind of an event that all of a sudden uh, everything was behind me and, and good, because there was, there's, there was and is from time to time still conditioning that comes up, things that I see about myself that are incongruent with what I knew to be true, mm-hmm. If that makes any sense.
0: Sure. I think everybody can relate to that. Everybody has a good deal of conditioning, whether they admit it or not. And, uh, you know... Be the it or not, right? Yeah, we don't go from being, you know, a, a total idiot to, a you know, enlightened sage overnight. There's, there's definitely a... I mean, a lot of people are down on this whole idea of some kind of progressive development, but I've never seen an exception to it, personally. I, I always feel like, you know, there's... On, maybe on some level there's no growth to undergo because there's some level of life that's always the same. But on on all the levels of life, at, on where we see change and difference, there's infinite room for improvement. That's my take on it.
1: It's a it's a very beautiful journey. It's a yeah. very beautiful journey. So in any case, as these um, as pieces of the pieces of this picture started to come together for me, and as I met people who I thought were really helpful for me. Uh, I was really excited about that. Um, I do know, Rick, and I'm sure you do much better than I, I've said in the past that when this happened, it was in 2006, that there weren't a lot of organized Advita sites out there. Right. And I've had some criticism from some people that have been around, been around much longer than I have, saying, well, that's just not true, you know, Akatoli's site was up, Gargaji's site was up, uh, Wayne Lickerman's site was up, Advaita.org.uk. Well, that is true, and I did find some of them. I, I ended up over at Advaita.org.uk, which is Dennis Waite's traditional Vedanta site at mm-hmm. one point. He was very helpful. Um, but they were, they, it was not as easy, perhaps it was just not easy for me certainly was not easy for me, finding these resources. And yeah. where, uh, I stumbled into the Eckhart thing and then it was sort of word of mouth that got me from one place to another. And as I found stuff that I knew was sincere and honest and it helped me, it was all about the selfish journey of Chris. Okay, <laughs> And then as as things connected here, I, I had this little website and I would just say, great, okay, I'm just going to start putting them on here, and, and like in an image uh, at night of the sea and a harbor and trying to find your way into the harbor in a boat and I sort of looked at it like we're just going to leave channel markers out there so that if someone else is coming along and is trying to find their way to shore that these channel markers might be some help to them yeah okay so that that was how stillness speaks came to came to be
0: mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's a laudable impulse it's also kind of a matter of personal dharma i think maybe you and i have a similar dharmic tendencies in terms of wanting to kind of you know share with others and so and some some people are perfectly content to just do this for themselves and that's per, that's okay too but some, you know some some people have to do this also and,
1: well you know I, ultimately speaking i do this for myself yep And I think even doing the stuff of filming and then doing the editing and doing the writing Mm -hmm. is the way I really investigate and learn what's going on. It takes that kind of thoroughness with me to do it. And so, but the actual process of doing that and then putting it up on the internet and doing all that uh, sort of, sort of lets, it's sort of my journey and and my roadmap, okay? Yeah. The thing that's important, I think, and the thing that I've discovered is that my roadmap is not your roadmap. It doesn't have to be the same. There may be places that it are, and, and places that aren't. I never tell anybody that what's worked for me should work for them, because really, I see that there are an infinite number of roads. There's only one destination, for sure. Yeah. But I've met so many people who have come at this from so many different directions, from Tibetan Buddhism, to Hinduism, to, from, to Kabbalah, to Western philosophy,
0: mm-hmm. to
1: stepping on a leaf. Yeah. No teacher, with teacher. And so I get to see this beautiful thing unfold in an infinite number of ways that always leads to the same thing. You know? Yeah,
0: it does. I mean, it, and it's funny because a lot of times people go through a lot of different things before they end up to coming to something which sounds pretty similar to what everyone else says been coming to like for instance Jack O'Keefe I'm sure you're aware of her She's, she went through everything under the sun and you know eventually has arrived as sort of a non-dual way of looking at things uh, but boy, what a what a journey! Or this lady I interviewed a couple of weeks ago, who has nine kids, and uh, you know her her whole path was the Jesus prayer, which she did with great intensity from every night, despite her ni- nine kids, from like three in the morning until the kids woke up, and it, it sort of lit a fire in her that resulted in this you know really ultimately this profound um, awakening or transformation. Letting the cat in here. Um, so, as you, it, it just emphasizes your point, that someone—I forget who it was—some well-known teacher recently, I heard him quoted as saying, "You know, there, all seven, all six billion of us are on a spiritual path. It's not like there are spiritual people and non-spiritual people or something. Everyone is on that journey. You were on the spiritual path in the midst of your, you know, entrepreneurial business life, you know, a, a decade ago or two decades ago."
1: Absolutely. But Robert Adams said it the best, Rick. He said, "All is well and is unfolding exactly as it should."
0: Yeah, It,
1: it was not clear to me before, uh, for quite a while, that every single thing that I was going through was exactly what I had to go through to get to where I am. Yeah. So uh, it's all good, and if someone is, you know, it, what kind of cat is that?:
0: She's a, uh, a Siamese Himalayan. Yeah, I have two slimy cats. And she often sits on my lap while I do these interviews. Very cute. <laughs> Very. Her name, her, her name is Lila. Lila. Yeah. Mine
1: are Shiva and Shakti. So. That's oh, great.
0: Lila. We could get them together, but I don't think they would like it. <laughs> Hi, Chris. <Yeah. laughs> oh, uh, okay. Right there. So, uh, okay. So you know. To get back to your evolving story, and incidentally, you have a cool uh, email address. It's oncechris at stillnessspeaks.com. com. I, I, I saw that a year ago. And I thought that's that's a clever that's a clever email address. <laughs> <laughs> um, but getting back to your story, um, you you know you you read Eckhart Tolle. That kind of you know was a big wake up for you, or aha, and you started reading all these other guys. But you eventually ended up with Francis Lucille, and in fact, you you moved from. Where is it, Dallas, to uh, <clears throat> to California to to live near him? So, how did you stumble upon Francis, and was it sort of like a, um, you know, g- g- really obvious to you when you finally met him that this was the guy that was for you?
1: Stumbling is really, really important word. Uh, Jerry <clears throat> a lot, and I think the most of the legitimate things that have happened for me have been stumbling. It, it really doesn't have a lot to do with my conscious decision. I um, had met some people associated with Eckhart Tolle who gave me an unpublished copy of a manuscript called Eternity Now, it was just a printout. And I started reading it, and as I read that book, I just was absolutely amazed at itself. Um, that's my God who wrote this. And um, at the very end of it, because um, it was someone's personal copy, I suspect, was the phone number, his phone number. Mm -hmm. And I'd finished reading it, and I sat there, and I went, no, this can't be. (laughs) I looked at it again, and I said, no, I really shouldn't, you know. And I thought about it for a little more, and I said, "Oh hell with it, I'm calling. (laughs) And I picked up the phone, and I called the number, and I got Raj Dekor, who is an Indian who uh, works with Francis, helps him at his home, and I just said, look, I, I don't know what to tell you, I don't know anything at all about Francis Lucille. I had met a few teachers at this point. Uh, I was very lucky. Eckert's people had put me in touch with Ajahn Shanti, mm-hmm. with Gangaji, uh, and Pamela Wilson. But oh, yeah. outside of that, outside of those, I really had no experience at all, and I was really, really seriously stumbling. And I said, uh, you know, this book is unbelievable. And he said, well, Chris, the Raj says to me, he says, Chris, why do you come on down? And I said, yeah, well, uh, maybe I will, do you have retreats? I said, just come on down. He says, you know, you can ask what what we get together in the living room, you can ask some questions, and then we're all going to get together for dinner, and then maybe afterwards we'll watch a movie together. Uh And I'm like sitting here, and I'm like, I guess in my own mind, there was still this hierarchy thing going on now. Right. Teacher, student, you know, all these separate things going on. And uh, that's fine watch a movie. (laughs) (laughs) My life is in catastrophic meltdown, and this guy was talking about hanging out and watching movies. So, I thought about it for a minute. I was in Vancouver at the time, Mm -hmm. and I said, okay, I'm going. And so, I went down uh, here to Temecula, and I met him, and I stayed here for a while, and during that period of time, yeah, I had some very profound experiences, again, happening that I can't even begin to explain. Um, but they were more traditional, I hate to use these words because these words alienate as, uh, as, as well as communicate, but they're more traditional, traditionally called like Nerve uh, Kalpa Samadhi experience. Mm-hmm. Um, experience.
0: Did those experiences happen just spontaneously as a result of sitting around with Francis, or did you do some practice, or what?
1: it makes almost no sense at all, some of the things that I say about this, Rick, and I feel very strongly about them, and I get criticized a lot about them.
0: I won't criticize you.
1: Physical, <laughs> physical proximity, you may have noticed this from... Oh, your, absolutely. Physical proximity to, uh, to someone who's fully awake mm-hmm. has a huge and direct impact on me. Yep. Franklin Merrill Wolf called it the induction. He used to say, when he used to speak live with people, mm-hmm. that um, that people, in spite of the words, that there was a transmission of sorts that happened, and people actually got what was going on in, in, in the presence, that there was something going on, which appeared to be geographic, or somehow tied up in the phenomena of the house, the place, the person, or whatever it was. Okay, mm-hmm. um, Ramana Maharshi talked about the transmission of silence. Yep. So this is not like unheard of, you know, he said that the power is in between the words, the power is not in the words. The truth is in between the words. The words are just sounds.
0: Yeah, no. The Indians have a word for it. They call it darshan. You know, and it it I think darshan no means is that means sitting near? Does it or is it? I think that's what the, the translation may need, may mean. And um, you know, there are many people whose spiritual path has just been to be in the proximity of their guru, and that, and there's a sort of an osmosis that takes place. You know. And they get awakened by virtue of that. I mean, I, I enjoy going to see Amma, the hugging saint, and it's a, you know, it's a real yeah. profound thing. Just having that sort of proximity. It's it's it may appear superficial. Oh, she's just hugging people, isn't that cute? But boy, it's it's a, it's like a spiritual transmission, and you come away from that just feeling a sh- a major shift.
1: Yeah, I I have to say. Um, Very early on, after my first year, while I was stumbling around, I got a hold of Dennis Waite, and I said, listen, I've never been to India, I feel the need to go to India, but I need to go with India, someone who really knows India, Mm -hmm. and he put me in touch with a guy named James Schwartz, who was... Oh, yeah. I've
0: interviewed James.
1: Yeah. James actually had almost no public interface when I met him. He was living in India and I went to India and I spent a lot of time traveling. We went to Varanasi, went to Tiruvannamalai, went to Kerala, went all over the place. And great. most of what I know about traditional Vedanta started with him. Mm-hmm. In any case, and he's just about the funniest human being you'll ever meet.
0: Yeah, I, he's a great guy.
1: I feel, I feel I'm, I, like I'm with my grandfather and he's gonna tell fishing stories or something. <laughs> we hang out at my house and watch basketball together, so there's a really, there's a real heart connection for me in there. When I was in India, one of the things that I noticed, Rick, and some people are going to say, you know, this is just psychological or nonsense, but it's the truth of my experience. There are certain temples that I would go into,
2: mm.
1: and and I could feel this containerless space, this infinite space, this deep, deep, deep pool when I went in there. And it would be so powerful sometimes that I, I wouldn't even get inside. I would just sit down, and I would sit there for... Hours and hours, and James would come up. Chris, you know, what are we doing? We're supposed to be going on. Hang here for a little while. So that was always sort of peculiar about me. There was some sensitivity to that. Maybe that explains some of what happened when I was with Francis. But some very extraordinary things happen. And I try not to spend too much time on the experiences because all the experiences begin and end. But there are shifts that occur in them, and then over time you begin to notice your whole view and your whole direction of life has changed once yeah I hate to say this but I just said it to someone else and someone took offense to it it's almost like when you've been kissed by God your life is over and and you're just sort of drawn to the sweetness and the perfume Francis talks about the perfume of silence because awareness has this even though, even though it doesn't have attributes, it does have attributes, mm-hmm. it affects the body.
0: Yeah, but, absolutely. I so, don't know why you're getting so much flack for this stuff, I mean, this to me, this is like, you know... Only from those
1: people who's, who haven't had the experience of being in the presence of the teacher who did this.
0: Right, maybe that's it. There's a lot it. of
1: people, Rick, there's a lot of people, particularly on the internet, who are jumping from teacher to teacher to teacher, and I'm not judging that, please. Mm-hmm. I'm not judging anyone on anything. I love everybody, okay? Mm-hmm. but is jumping teacher-teacher and doing it on the internet, may not and reading books and coming to conclusions on their own. I'm not saying that that's good or that's bad, but the experience, which really makes no sense, that a perception could be veiling uh, Ananda, prevailing mm-hmm. presence and, and, and bliss in such a way. But what my experience is, and the only way I can explain this, is that it seems that consciousness is aware of itself, and when in the company of like-minded people, knowing and being create this phenomena called anandam, yep. and it's that feeling of love and bliss and and, and, and openness that really doesn't belong to a Chris or to anything else. It's, it, it's what's here before all that. So, I, I, I'm not a teacher, okay? I, I, I don't have these great skills at explaining all this, but I, I've been a, a junkie of this ever since I experienced it. And so, I had this experience and it was so profound I could hardly walk. At one point, I got on a plane going back home to Dallas, Texas. I was on the plane and I said, what am I going to do now? I had no idea. I still had my home, everything in in Dallas, and uh, and all of a sudden the thought just occurred to me. He says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to sell everything I have, I'm going to pack up everything, and I'm going to move down here and live right next door to to Francis. And so that's what happened. And um, that did not stop me from going out and interviewing and trying to share and see what this beautiful blossoming that's going on, I think. Um, and sometimes people think that my fingerprints end up too much on, on, on this film work that I do and that kind of stuff. And oh,
0: I, me too, I get criticism for talking too much. <laughs> I apologize for that, but it's my own enthusiasm. No, you're fine, I, I, I'm not criticizing you. It, it, I know that
1: you're not, but I mean, for anybody who's watching this, oh, I,
0: okay. sure. I apologize.
1: It's not meant to be any indication on anything about a Chris. It has nothing to do with a Chris, okay? It has to do with that which it precedes a Chris. Okay? Right. But my heart is so thrilled and so happy about all this that I really enjoy doing it. And sometimes, Rick, and I know, I'm sure you know this, I get so enthusiastic that it doesn't—it's not an interview anymore. Yeah, it's a conversation between two truth lovers, and that's what I love to do. And sometimes, when that happens, people are like, "Oh, I don't really want to listen to Chris. I came here to listen to Jeff Foster, I came here mm-hmm. to Peter Jubin, Rupert Spire, Francis Lucille, Greg Good, whoever it is that you know that. That I'm working with. I've
0: gotten the same criticism some a couple of weeks ago. Some guy said, "Why don't you just interview yourself? You know, then you won't." <laughs> and uh, and yeah. then I, I actually and then some other guy chimed in and said, "No, I like the discussion quality of it. You know, yeah. I mean, you, you know, you've been around for a while. You have something to say also." And Larry King said, "If I'm talking, I'm not learning anything." But I think this is a little bit of a different situation when we're doing these.
1: Well, there is, for me, what I do with Stillness Speaks is not my business. Uh, my primary business. I'm very lucky that I have a career which allows me to do what I do with Stillness Speaks. Yeah. And people me, why would you, why would you do Stillness Speaks? It's a sea of red ink. It, it's obviously a fairly sophisticated uh, site, and yeah. it, it costs quite a bit of money to put it together and all that. And I just said, you don't understand that the commerce of Stillness Speaks isn't cash. Right. The uh-huh. commerce of Stillness Speaks is the un believable friendships that I make on this journey. Yeah. The people that I know, I say, I cannot even begin to express to you how many beautiful people I meet. And they become my heart friends. I mean, from here on out, if I'm in Fairfield, Iowa, if you don't think I'm showing up at your house to meet your cat, you're <laughs> you know, you down here, you know I'm going to be saying, come on down, let's have a cup of tea together and spend some time together. Yeah. This is my love. Yep. And, and, what I've discovered is that beyond my basic needs of food and clothing and shelter that what really makes me happy is the company of like-minded people Yeah. Yep. and this has given me not only the opportunity to spend time with people that we call teachers mm-hmm. but also because Stillness Speaks is actually quite large we have a fairly big newsletter and a lot of people we get over two thousand visitors a day mm-hmm. on Stillness Speaks some days and I get these emails from all over the world, and I call them Yanni's in the mist. Mm-hmm. They're people that don't want any attention. They're people that don't need a limelight, they don't need to teach. They're as clear as bells. Yeah. Yeah. They're magnificent people, and they're generally very humble. I have to be careful when I talk to them, so that I don't come off as being braggadocious, or arrogant, or delusional, because they generally know more than I do. And they're just there to nurture, and to be friendly, and and uh, and, and, and 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 to help this thing unfold. Yeah, to, to help this thing unfold. And so I keep meeting. Every day I'm meeting people that are part of the unfolding that's going on here, and it's so magnificent. And so. It be, it only makes sense. What what Stillness Speaks is only makes sense in that context. And that I, I've just met the most unbelievable people, um, and I'm proud to be able to call these people my friends.
0: Yeah, I could. You stated very eloquently something I could say myself. With the result, you know, as a result of my experience with, with this Buddha the gas pump thing, it's like this global family, and you just kind of keep it keeps deepening and, and expanding its connections and so on. And it's it's really a joy.
1: You know something, like, Rick? I'll ask you this question. just uh, mm-hmm. the tables on you. Something that's very clear to me
2: mm-hmm.
1: is that all these people that I'm meeting are exactly who I need to meet.
2: Yeah, yeah,
0: that too. Uh, you know, I, I mean, once in a while I'll do an interview and I think, well, I should have thought about that one a little bit more ahead of time. That turned out to be a bit of a dud. But most of them, it's like they, they're kind of as yeah. I think you said about half an hour ago that this is kind of in a way become a spiritual practice for you doing this whole interviewing thing it, uh, and the whole stone it, and that, I mean I experienced that too it's sort of like I keep as you say meeting the people I need to meet getting sort of bits and pieces of understanding and insight having people kind of prod and probe me and change my kind of perspective in different ways and I found it to be a very I've only been doing it for a little over a year it's been very conducive to my own growth. Right, and that's
1: really ultimately what it's all about. If you start getting the, the impression from afar that mm-hmm. this is a commercial enterprise that we're involved in here, even though we do sell DVDs, we try to recover as much of the money as we can, it is much more likely that Stillness Speaks will just become one day a formal 501c3 nonprofit. profit yeah. But it's, uh, that you've missed the entire point. The, the, the point of Stillness Speaks is to create, my heart tells me, that what we're trying to do is create a safe place. In other words, that I've met the people that are on the site and I have some confidence that they're not bad actors, because we have right. had some bad actors in this arena, that they're honest and that they're sincere and that at least some of what I've talked to them with me has helped open things up here now. Yep. And if I see that, then I say, why not share this with other people? It's an open gate from that point forward. And some people say to them, well, why is this person not on here? Or Why is this person on here? And I just say to them, you know, it's not that um, Byron Katie's not on the site because I don't want her on the site. I wouldn't love to have her on the site. Mm-hmm. But I, I need to spend some time with her so that I really understand what I'm doing and, and uh, put her up there. Because I just want to make sure that everything that comes on to Stillness Speaks is really a great thing. And I'm not saying that I'm the only resource or the best resource or anything. What I am saying is this is about my journey, and I, I share it with you if you like it, it's yours. I'll try to make as much of it free as I possibly can. And if it's not for you, that's okay too.
0: It's yeah, yeah. okay
1: too.
0: I'm going to come back to a point you were making a, a little while ago about you know, sitting in temples and sitting with teachers and all. And I, I think that there could probably be a, a scientific explanation for that Phenomenon of the the sort of the transmission or the contagion of of awakeness to from one to the other, and I think Rupert Sheldrake has tried to do that with his whole morphogenetic fields idea, um, and you know I, I have a friend who wrote a very interesting book about subtle energy and how subtle energy uh, can you know is as real as any other thing we know about and how it, it, it has a, a role to play in spiritual awakening. and I, I think that um, you know uh, some temple in India where people have been going for thousands of years and doing spiritual things can kind of build up a, a, a surplus of subtle energy, or, or whatever term we want to use, so that when you sit in that presence of that place, you become, um, you know, saturated with it, and the same is true of uh, a spiritual teacher, especially one who is the right one for you, with whom you have the right resonance. You know, uh, it just naturally triggers um, profound sh- shifts, as it as it has in your case with Francis.
1: Yeah, it's true, and I can say that I don't think that places accumulate this kind of whatever it is, energy or shakti or. Mm-hmm. subtle subtle energy, as you call it. I know that to be true. Yeah, yeah. And I can't explain it because uh, I see all perception as being empty. You know, like, when I close my eyes and I talk to myself, really all that I hear, and I do hear these thoughts, are sounds. Mm -hmm. And before there are sounds, there's nothing but this magnificent space. And then there are the sounds and then there's the space. And when I look at that, I realize that the sounds don't have any intelligence. They really don't have any meaning. So where did the, the thought come from? Well, it had to come from what was there before, and where did it go to after it was done? And the examination of that shows me that sound, in this particular case, is an empty perception that what's going on is going on between the sounds. Okay. And when I start looking, examining bodily sensations and sensory perceptions in the same way, I realize that the same is all true. That the substance of what's going on isn't in the perception. It's in the free, open awareness that supports it all. Mm -hmm. And um, it's turning around and realizing that my own beingness, my essential beingness, is never gone. That is the great reward. And that sense of beingness is somehow attracted oops it, it, it's attracted when um there is a proximity to other perceptions so somehow consciousness is aware of itself and there's this it's a vibrational thing it's an anandam, and it's the great joy of being and uh and it's magnificent it's called love and it's love without an opposite in my experience
0: yeah one thing I was impressed with when I listened to your um, well, talking to you now, and also you know, preparing for this interview a little bit, is that you're you know you're a relative newbie to this whole thing. I mean, it's only been about five years, and yet you've become so articulate with it. Um, you know, maybe you've I mean you've I guess it, that's a reflection of the degree to which you've immersed yourself. But um, you're you know you're really quite a an articulate uh, mouthpiece for this this knowledge. I commend you on that. You know,
1: Rick, I'm, very simply, a one-trick pony. Uh After having been dropped, for lack of a better term, into this spaceless space, I've only one interest in life. I'm really, actually, very boring. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated, even though what we're talking about can't be spoken of, even though it's not in the words, I just find it endlessly fascinating trying to describe it with words. Yeah. So I read all traditions, mm-hmm. because I find this material in all traditions. I find it in Christian literature, Hindu literature, Sufi literature, Muslim literature, Western philosophical stuff, and, um, and in satsang, and from people, and in nature. I just see it everywhere. Yeah, actually, every perception that I see is only a confirmation of that which is, you know. So um, it's a great joy. It's a great joy. And so yeah, I sort of all, everything else to me sort of paled. Nothing else to me has any great attachment. You know, there are some things I like comfort. Sure. I, I'd rather be in a first class seat in an airplane than a coach seat. And, <laughs> you know, and and I like to have a really comfy bed. Mm-hmm. But the truth of the matter is that my heart. Has been
0: stolen. Yeah, <laughs> Jesus said something about not being lukewarm, you know, just sort of. And you, you, it appears that that hasn't been your tendency. I mean, first you were not you were not a lukewarm businessman, and now you're not a lukewarm, uh, you know, spiritual guy. <laughs> you're just yeah. plunged, plunged into this thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's,
1: that's definitely true.
0: So, what what would you say with regard to? I mean, you've been hanging with Francis now for four or five years or something, and you've been having. You know, undoubtedly, you could probably recognize that there has been a progressive um, unfoldment, or maturation, or deepening, or something over this period of time. Um, can you say a bit more about that? Uh, you know, or is it too abstract and hard to hard to describe?
1: I'm going to take a shot at. Um I want to take a shot at something that's very, another controversial topic. Okay. Which is, is there progression at all? Okay. Standing as the absolute, there is no time or space. There's that's very clear. But in as much as most people who are listening to an interview uh, believe that they're human beings on a journey through time and space, there is something to do,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that something to do is to investigate the truth of whether or not you're a human being on a journey through time and space and um, whether or not that journey precipitates or doesn't precipitate anything from my perspective it has prepared my mind or answered questions that were in my mind that allowed it to settle down I know this may sound strange but until I had answered enough of the questions that were in my mind regarding the nature of reality and the nature of who I was, my mind wouldn't let go. I have a very Western background, very scientific. I had a, a very materialistic view of the universe. Um, and so I really needed i needed someone know, uh, who was well-grounded, uh, academically, scientifically, as well as well-grounded in these traditions, to re- be able to walk me through this tremendous minefield that was my my belief systems, and they were all beliefs that turned out to be all beliefs. So, from that point of view, yeah, as long as I felt as though I was a human being on a journey through time and space, I think there was something to do, and yes, I do believe there is progression. Mm -hmm. And Francis, of course, I have to tell you that in spiritual matters, it's very dangerous to go things alone, and I have some very dear friends who have done this without any teachers. I mean, Carl Renz is a remarkable guy, no teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeff Foster is a remarkable guy, no teacher. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, there are a lot of people I can point to. Um, Tony Parsons stepped on a leaf. Oh,
0: was that, was that his uh, Yeah. I mean, Gangaji, Gangaji had a, uh, not Gangaji, uh, Akertoli, had, excuse me, Byron Katie had a cockroach crawl across her foot. Yeah. Uh,
1: So, at that moment, at that moment, everything that I'd done up until that point, when the cockroach crawled across my feet, it became very clear, looking backwards, and none of that mattered, okay? Mm -hmm. But, I do find it coincidentally uh, important, as a human being, to point out that all of the people virtually all the people, maybe Ramana Maharshi, who I'd never met, <laughs> right. might have been an exception, most virtually all the people that I've met were people that were sincerely and deeply looking at these issues prior to having a dropping away.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, and so from that point of view, and that may just from this point of view had to do with satisfying the mind, so that the mind, because the mind's not invited to this party. right. The mind is not invited to this party. And until the mind understands that and realizes that it's okay, it's gonna keep trying to reconstruct its personality and its identification. It's gonna to try to co opt itself as a teacher, it's gonna to try to co opt itself as, you know, knowing something, figuring something out. And I have I had a lot of that stuff that I had to I had to sit with. Mm-hmm. So but yeah, um and, and yes, I feel that uh, there are a lot of teachers that are perfect. Francis Francis is a great candidate if you need to go deep sea fishing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, um, I mean. So are
0: guess. you saying that you had your own cockroach moment at some point?
1: I've had, and I suspect I always will have cockroach moments. Okay, there have been many. You're faced with life. Right. It just the beauty is that the mystery that I am and that we are is constantly revealing itself in the moment.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There is no past and there is no future, and right now and right here, things th- things appear. So
0: there's a nice quote from just France. From France, appear- I'm sorry. What? I, I guess
1: the only question is who are they appearing to?
0: Right. Uh, there's a nice quote from uh, Francis's teacher Jean Klein. Uh, he said, "He said awakening is instantaneous. Clarity takes place in space-time."
1: Yeah, this is uh, Francis speaks about that a lot. I like that a lot, and mm-hmm. I urge people when they talk to me that that like when we were talking in the beginning here. Oh, it's nice. You had this experience. You cleaned the decks, and you're ready to go forward. Um, there are. Uh, Francis uses two words. He uses the word enlightenment and he uses the word Mm self-realization. Enlightenment is the overwhelming seeing of the nature of reality, not necessarily in a way that makes any sense, but it's a seeing, maybe of consciousness without an object in a sense, uh, followed by a period of time where everything that's going on in my life, which is habitual as it comes back up it seemed to be either consistent with what i now know or inconsistent with what i now know and there's this problem this process of self-realization as that stuff falls away and during that period of time yeah there's a sadhana there's a sadhana of cooperating with reality and allowing that rearrangement to take place yeah and it happens here it wasn't only a mental thing, the thing that's wild for me is that it's also becoming a body thing. Right. There are actual changes going on at the level of the body as well. Absolutely. That process, yeah, I believe in that
0: process. Yeah, I mean, this is lived through a body. If you had a serious stroke or something like that, this wouldn't be lived anymore, or if your body died, obviously. Yeah. And uh, so it stands to reason that this, I, I like to kind of think of it like the analogy of a, a radio or something. I have this little cheap $5 dollar radio in the bathroom where I listen to NPR in the morning, and, and um, you know, it's always getting out of tune, and I have to kind of keep keeping in on the station. And you know, there's, there's a great, I think, range to which the physiology can be fine-tuned in order to be a more fit instrument for, for living this. Yeah.
1: It's not like it requires any effort here. It just Right, it just it, happens. Things, that, things appear, the things that are incongruent appear, they're seen, and they're let go of. There's yeah. a lot of effort to this, it's sort of nice, right? <laughs> <laughs> totally incongruent with the first half of my life. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Have, for... have you ever? I know you know Chuck Hillig. Um, he he. Have you ever heard his little interpretation of "Row, row, row your boat"? Uh, I
1: don't recall it right now.
0: Kind of very sweet the way he kind of picked up that nursery rhyme. It's like think about the lyrics: "Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream." Mm-hmm. So you're going with the stream, you're flowing, but there's a little bit of rowing involved. You're not just letting yourself drift aimlessly. And then merrily, 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 four times for emphasis. Life is but a dream. <laughs> it's good.
2: It's yeah.
0: good to end up. Yeah. Um, this, this whole thing about progress being some kind of a dirty word in, in some circles, I, I kind like to, or non-doer.
1: Pardon? Doer or non-doer. I get it. I understand. Yeah.
0: It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's not either or. It's both and, as Tim Freak likes to say. There, you know, on one hand, there is a level at which there could not conceivably be progress. You know, it is what it is. It's never going to be anything other than that. There's a, there's another. There are other realms of life in which progress is built in. And it's the way it works.
1: Yeah. There's an absolute, and then the, there's a relative. The relative is an appearance, but it, it's, it's. I mean, it would be like saying that there's no dreaming at night, right? You know. Yeah. I mean, denial of my experience. Right. Yeah. So the question, the only question that ever arises is, how much of the, how much free will is there about any other? And that's a good question to keep looking at.
0: Well, that's an age-old debate. And even on that one, I think we can sort of say both and, you know, yeah, there isn't any, and yet on, and there is. And mm-hmm. if you perceive yourself as having some, then exercise it wisely.
1: You know, Greg Good said something, uh, I just put on a new DVD called Western Masters of Non-Duality. What a pretentious title, huh? I interviewed 17 teachers and put them all uh, on it. But Greg had a great line in it. Greg Greg said, you know, on this issue of doing or not doing, he says, I'm I'm not taking a position one way or the other. He said, a very good friend of mine once said, listen, there's an awful lot of different things you do. My recommendation would be to throw the kitchen sink at it. Uh (laughs) I said, that's very good advice. Huh. Just throw the kitchen sink at it.
0: Why does not? He, does he mean like you know, grab all the gusto you can get, just sort of do them all, or do whatever you want to do? Or? It works
1: your heart in the moment, you know. Yeah, yeah. Everything. Find out what in your direct experience works for you. This isn't about anyone else's journey. It's about your journey.
0: Yeah, you know that, and that was one of the things that gave me joy when I was listening to your interview. Um, that you know, you do seem to have this all-inclusiveness, which is a little bit different than. Than some of the people out there who have, seem to have this exclusiveness in which they kind of dismiss the value of of what a lot of people have been doing for thousands of years. You know, they say, "Well, that's it's all a waste of time." You know, you shouldn't meditate. God is just a human concept. You know, all kinds of things they throw out, yeah. which which to me is not the whole picture. You know, I I well, sort of I'm much more inclined to say, "Great," you know, whatever works for you, and and it's all it's all good.
1: I don't force any of this stuff on anyone, but I, I have to tell you that, like you, um, the Vedanta, with the Brahma Sutras, the Bhagavad Gita, and the Upanishads, seems to have a track record of a couple thousand histories of consistently waking people up. Yep. And my experience of studying those texts, has been tremendously pleasurable. It's has never been an effort for me. It's something I really love to do. Mm-hmm. So if your heart's telling you to do that, why not do that? Yeah. After, after it's all over, what is life other than celebration?
0: <laughs>
1: do what you like.
0: I think one of the hang ups, one of the problems is that people often mistakenly use a description as a prescription. In other words, you know, they're describing the state they're in or maybe their understanding of the state that they Feel they would like to be in and using that as a as something that should apply to all levels as if a guy is standing on a mountaintop describing his immediate surroundings and expecting that to be helpful for the people who are climbing still you know he needs to kind of give and shout down instructions that are relevant to where they're where they are at in the climb you know and then maybe when they get close to the top maybe then uh there can be a little thing where they're still they still think they're climbing and they've got to sort of break out of that habit, and and it might be appropriate to say, hey, dude, you're here, you know, stop climbing.
1: (laughs) Um, I absolutely agree with you that, um, that it's a question of levels, and I think as communicators, and I think you're a communicator, and I think these teachers need to be communicators, that when you're dealing with someone who's asking questions, that first we need to listen and we need to hear where the question is coming from. Mm -hmm. And then, rather than showing them where you want them to go, to come back and stand where that question is being asked, gently, and look around with that person and say, okay, well, let's just see if that's true, and let's walk forward from there. That, to me, I think is very successful, and so whether or not it's relative or it's absolute, really depends upon the question and the person and, and the time and the place. But to try to answer a relative question like "What am I supposed to do about my kids who are I, I have to pick up a daycare?" And it drives me absolutely crazy. With a "You don't exist" answer,
0: right, is, is um, not helpful. Not helpful. Yeah, there's that Indian saying, which I'm sure is not even exclusive to India, that it takes a thorn to remove a thorn. You know, and uh, ultimately, it may be that a lot of things that are that are useful in the name of teaching, ultimately, you know, are are all BS. You know, they're they're all nonsense from the from the perspective of the ultimate truth. But they sure can be helpful at whatever stage they 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 need to be used at. You know,
1: take a look at the whole process of rishiksha of the witness and what you're witnessing. Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately. That whole teaching teaches you that your awareness, but uh, when you look at it at a certain point, you realize that there's another duality here. Yeah. yeah right? So you have this thorn, as you said, and you use it to establish your certainty that what you are is not objective,
0: mm-hmm. and then
1: you use that thorn to remove it, and then when that's done, you get rid of it all. Yep. Okay? But it's a tool that's being used on the way.
0: Exactly. So, and and a, and at a certain point, that that sort of stage of witnessing. And finding that the you know the creation is completely un- unrelated to you, that melts. Uh, maybe that's what you're just saying. That melts into a grander unity, in which the, there is no longer this dichotomy. But you know, uh, but that's you know that's then. <laughs> There's going to be a phase for many people where they're in this, this sort of dualistic uh, witnessing state.
1: That's okay too.
0: Yeah, yeah. Alrighty, well. Uh, are we done? <laughs> I mean, this has been great. Uh, is there yeah. anything...
1: Uh, I'm having a wonderful time. I don't know if we're done or not, but we're probably just starting, right?
0: Yeah. yeah. So I'll,
1: I'll be on this film. <laughs> Pardon? What? I said, I don't know if we're ending. I more feel like we're starting, but I think it may be the end of this particular film.
0: Yeah, I just had that wave. that A feeling comes at a certain point of, ah, okay, we've done it, you know? <laughs> so... Uh, so this has been great. Um, I've really enjoyed this, and I, I commend you on what you're doing. And uh, you, you might, you know, well, I don't know what, what your criteria are for choosing people to interview, but uh, maybe, uh, maybe some of the people that I discover will be useful for you in, in your efforts, and vice versa. Yeah. And. Um, We'll be in touch. Well, we're going to do that today, actually. I'm yeah, like, I'm going to check out, out this Benicio guy or whatever his name is. Uh, yeah, he's so he sounds when he, great. When he
1: gets to the house, I'll, I'll have him talk to you. And then, you know, um, absolutely, I want you to understand that um, everything you do, I watch. Oh, do uh, you? Yeah, I really do. Oh, that's, that's great. It, I really appreciate I, it. I, I've met. It's, it's my great joy, and I think you do it well.
0: Mm-hmm. I think well I, I, that's sweet. I, I really, I'm, I'm honored by that. And yeah. uh, you know, if you ever want contact people, info for anybody that you might want to talk yeah. to yourself, I'll be happy to provide that.
1: And here too for you. Yeah, so, thanks.
0: Here. So let me just make a few concluding comments. Um, one thing I forgot to mention in the beginning is that sometimes people ask me, well who are your favorite interviews that you've done you know because I can't watch 60 of them where should I start and so a couple weeks ago I put in this little star rating system on the site and so we, I'm, I'm speaking to everyone now uh, listening when you when you watch an interview or listen to one if you feel like it click on a star according to how much you like that particular interview and you know after enough people do it it'll become statistically significant perhaps um, not to say that there won't always be exceptions you know because everyone has their own proclivities but maybe it'll emerge that certain ones might be a good place to start with. So there's that. Not too many people have clicked on them yet, and maybe that people didn't understand what the stars were for. And, uh, and I just want to sort of say in conclusion that, um, you know, depending upon how you're hearing this, uh, there's one place you can go to find them all, because uh, I keep doing them, and there are about 62 of them now, um, and that is batgap.com, which is an acronym for Buddha at the Gas Pump. So go to batgap.com, and you can sign up for an email thing there to be notified every time a new one gets posted and there's a podcast if you'd rather listen in your car or you know video if you'd rather watch it in video and so on so i've been speaking with chris hebbard who is the founder and there's chris's cat it just jumped up behind you and walked across another siamese beautiful um yes, come yeah here. my cat has gone outside so i can't quite introduce the cats at this point but she <laughs> she, <food> yeah she's she, <laughs> a, <he's> a beauty <laughs> So I've been speaking with Chris and his cat of StillnessSpeaks.com. Go there, and you can also sign up for Chris's uh, emails and, uh, and check out all the beautiful interviews that he's been doing. So thank you very much for watching, and we'll see you next week.